We want to be the safe harbor in the storm, the calm of the storm, the eye of the storm, instead of joining the storm. This is a Therapy for Dads podcast. I am your host. My name is Travis. I'm a therapist, a dad, a husband. Here at Therapy for Dads, we provide content around the integration of holistic mental health, well-researched evidence-based education, and parenthood. Welcome. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of the Therapy for Dads podcast. I am extremely excited, uh, humbled, grateful to have um, this guest on uh, this afternoon or morning or evening, whenever you're listening to this. Um, It's someone that I've learned a lot from as a parent myself. I've read a lot of her work and have shared her work with friends, with clients, with pretty much everybody. I really believe in the work she's doing and has been doing for years. Um, She said yes, and I had to have her on the show because I think what she's doing is so important, um, not only for us as as adults, um, individually as men and women, as parents, but also as we help raise our kiddos uh, and and impacting the next generation for the better. So I'm going to introduce her, and this is for Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, and she's the author of The Bottom Line for Baby, which is one of her more recent books, and co-author with Dan Siegel of some amazing bestsellers, which is The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline. Each of those have been translated in over 50 languages, as well as The Yes Brain and The Power of Showing Up. She's the founder and executive director of the Center for Connection, which is a multidisciplinary clinical practice in Southern California. Dr. Bryson keynotes conferences and conducts workshops for parents, educators, and clinicians all over the world. And she frequently consults with schools, businesses, and other organizations. As a licensed clinical social worker, she is a graduate from Baylor University with a PhD from USC. And the most important part of her bio, she says, is that she's a mom to her three boys. And you can learn more about her, about Dr. Bryson at tinabryson.com. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Bryson. Please call me Tina, and thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here today. Yes, I, I will call you Tina, and thank you. And thank you again. So really honestly humbled. I remember reading your work in grad school um, for the very first time, and the whole Brainchild book was the very first one I stumbled upon. This is about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading it and thinking, yeah, this is totally just spot on, like a glove. And then as I got licensed, became a clinician and became a father myself, really seeing how important this is and understanding kind of brain development as well as attuned, secure attachment and being connected with our kiddos and how how much that makes a difference. Um, and so today, the co- the topic of conversation today is going to be all about discipline, which I know, I think, is a big favorite topic of yours, yes? I love talking about it. And really, my my life's work is has always been really about how do we see and understand kids' behaviors, mm-hmm. and how do we respond to them in a way that keeps the brain and the nervous system and relationship in mind. And really... What I want, one of the main reasons I love to talk about it is I want to be part of a revolution along with a lot of other people in this space who are really changing how we see and respond to kids' behaviors with the brain in mind. And a lot of what we typically do in the name of discipline is not only outdated, but mm. it's counterproductive. So when you really understand the nervous system and how kids learn and the power of positive, safe experiences in relationship that are repeated over and over and over, it's really pretty 
altering. Um, Mm. I'm all about what works, though. So we're going to talk about effectiveness and what works um, and also how important it is to have rules and boundaries and limits and high expectations. So this is not a soft, permissive approach, um, Mm. but it's a really intentional one. So anyway, those are some of the reasons I love talking about it. Yeah. And and I'm wondering, you know, I think from the generation um, my parents were and, you know, discipline, you know, a lot of what looked like for me growing up and and maybe you could speak to kind of the shift from discipline, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago to now, I know there's still revolution. There's still, we're still shifting the ship. It's a big cruise ship. I think I'm sure as you've seen, it's not just a quick, (laughs) you know, 180, but you know, I think when I was a kid, you know, really it was sent to my room, um, you know, go in there until you're calm, um, then come out when you're collected. It was a lot of that or, um, consequences of just, well, we're taking this away. And, uh, but that was it. There was, I remember just a lot of times in my room, I was grounded a lot, not a lot, but enough to be, and I learned just, okay, well, I'm not going to do that again. And then I became the good kid, but my brother, he didn't really learn that so well. I remember he was often (laughs) in his room and I'd be out and he'd be upset. So, you know, discipline in my home was just kind of go to your room. That was, I think the theme, if you will, um, more than anything else. And my parents would come in and, you know, maybe give me a hug after, but it was, it was more often than not just kind of alone and by myself and thinking about what I did wrong. And I have a memory of my parents saying, well, think about what you did wrong. And I, I remember sometimes I, I don't even know what I did. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I'd be sitting there thinking, I'm like, I don't know. And I felt like I was guessing sometimes. So I'm wondering what was the kind of the old model, the, the stuff yeah. that we're shifting from that you're seeing how discipline was done? Yeah, I think if you think about how we use the word discipline or disciplinarian or um, disciplinary practices, like the way that word is still used in our culture, um, it still is very much thought of as punishment. And um, that's sort of the lens is like, so if someone's like, that kid needs more discipline, they mean punishment. When someone says at a school, here are disciplinary policies, they mean consequences and punishments, right? Mm -hmm. So I think traditionally, we all still have that really embedded in how our brain has mapped what the meaning of discipline is. Mm-hmm. But um, the problem is, and, and and I'll say too that this is still the case, but certainly more so in previous generations of parents, is that a lot of times parents or teachers are disciplining just because they feel like they have to. They're like, mm. well, I guess I have to give you a consequence because if I don't, then you're going to be spoiled or you're going to grow up to be a terrible person. Like, I think a lot of just fly by the seat of the pants, gut reaction, throw out a consequence or a punishment is just because we somehow know that like kids need some sort of accountability for their behavior um, and they need to change their behavior or they don't grow up to be good people. So that's where mm-hmm. that, I think it's really well intentioned. But if you go back to the, so when Dan and I were writing No Drama Discipline, we had a colleague who said to us, please don't use the word discipline in the title of your discipline book because the what people think of and what that word connotes is punishment. So mm. we were like, how about if we just totally change culture and we revolutionize how we think about discipline um, in a more updated way based on what we know about the science. But more than that, how about we reclaim the original meaning of the word? So if you think about disciplines in a college or you think about disciples, or you think about some of these other ways that the word has been used historically, the word itself or in its origins go to the idea of teaching and Mm. skill building. And so here's, here's what I will say too, is I've had a lot of parents in my office and I ask them, what is your discipline philosophy? And they're like, and by the way, parents are almost never on the same page. Um, So if you're feeling that, 
you're with the majority. Mm-hmm. Um, but oftentimes they're like, well, I don't know. I just want him to be a good person. Like there are people that have not really usually ever even asked the question, what is our discipline philosophy? Mm-hmm. But here's what I would um, offer up. And here's how I think about it, given everything I know about child development and the nervous system and all of this stuff, is that we should first start with our goal, our goal of discipline. What is my goal of discipline? My goal is to have a child who becomes self disciplined so that they do the right thing and handle themselves well without anybody else watching Mm. that there's an impulse to do something. They stop themselves from doing it if it's not right. And they make a different decision. That's Mm. my goal for discipline is to become a self-disciplined person. What the science tells us about how we get them there is through lots and lots of teaching and skill building. Now, the brain is plastic, meaning it's moldable. It's Mm. changeable through experiences. And children's brains are way more... I mean, we... Fortunately, we have plastic brains through our entire lifespan, so it's never too late for any of us. But it's excessive. Like the ability to change the brain from experience is wide open in childhood and even through adolescence and into the 20s. So this means we have a tremendous opportunity as people who guide our children and teach them and love them, but also discipline them. And by when I say discipline from my lens, I mean teach to teach Mm. them. Um, and the way we get there is just like when I lift weights and I do reps, I, um, I build that muscle. Hmm. The way we get kids there with, a, with plasticity of their brain in mind is through many, many, many reps and learning as development unfolds. So you could give a six-month-old a bunch of reps of putting them on the toilet to use the bathroom instead of a, use the toilet instead of a diaper. And developmentally, they're not really ready for that yet. So it has to also, we have to hold in mind the context of development Mm. because we're so far off, Travis, in our expectations. Like I really want to coach a six-year-old um, to say to their parent, like the parent says, how many times do I have to tell you? Like, I told you not to do that. I told you not to hit your sister. Why are you hitting your sister again? And I want to coach the six-year-old to say, well, given my, um, undeveloped prefrontal cortex that doesn't yet have great (laughs) impulse control. And given that I'm going to need probably 40 to 60 reps, at least over at Mm. least a three month period for me to be able to do that once I'm developmentally ready Mm. to have those lessons embedded, then I'll get it. So, you know, just like when you heard seven times seven equals 49, you didn't have that down. You Mm. had to hear it over and over and over and you had to write it down and you had to use your flashcards. And so we need reps Mm. and we know that children learn best in two ways. One is by what is modeled for them. So if we want our kids to be emotionally regulated when they're angry and handle their anger inappropriate relationally and in, within enough self-control that they're not doing harm, yeah. we have to model that. Right. Um, and the second way they learn best is by practicing doing it themselves. So mm-hmm. they need practice stopping their bodies from hitting their sibling when their sibling makes them mad, right? So I think all of this is the idea that if we can just shift from punishment and consequences to teaching and skill building, Hmm. it's a huge game changer. And let me just say one more thing about that. That means that every time it's a discipline moment, we should be asking, is my child ready to learn Hmm. in this moment? Because we've been taught wrong based on mostly animal research in the 50s, that if we don't handle it right then and there, they don't learn. That's not even true of a two-year-old. Right. So are they ready to learn? And then ask the question, am I ready to teach? And if the answer to the, either of those is no, then it's time. It's better to wait. Hmm. 
And everything we do in the name of discipline should make it more likely our child will do it right or better the next time. And when we think about it like that, like I'm going to discipline, I'm going to teach in response to my child's behavior. And I want to do it in a way that's giving them a rep to allow them to do it better over time. If I just punitively send them to their room, that doesn't do anything to give them any kind of practice um, or to give them any kind of skill or strategy to stop their bodies from hitting their sibling the next time. So Mm. it's much more moving our lens from instead of doing something to them, like punishing them or giving them Mm. a consequence. And I'm not saying there's never a reason to give a consequence. That's it's very nuanced, obviously. Mm. But instead of doing something to them, What I need to do is something for them in order to give them practice learning those skills so that they can do it for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that the rep analogy, I use it so often with clients I work with. I look, I work primarily more with adults, um, but it is, it's practice repetition. And I think sometimes we just think, and I I, I do work with kids too and parents and because they come to my office and I've heard this like a three-year-old comes in. And they say he has an anger issue. He has anger problems. And it's this expectation, I think, going back to what you said, this expectation that you should be able to teach the kid one time, a three, four, five, six-year-old one time, and then they should just get it for the rest of the eternity. Right. It's like, well, I showed you. Like, you should just get yeah. it. It's, And I think hearing that is, it is, it's this idea that we don't understand that the brain is still growing and developing, that we expect right. these are small adults. Because I hear parents say, well, they got it this time. Yeah. You know, but why they get it next time? So what would you right. say to a parent like that? Like, well, they got it. And now I got to teach it again. Like, it's almost yeah. like a frustration from the parent to even have to do this again. What would I you mean, say we could that? spend an hour just answering that question, but I'll <laughs> say two quick things. One yeah. is just because, okay, let me say it this way. Travis, I bet you're a really patient parent who is really intentional most of the time. Yes. Are you patient and intentional every moment of every parenting Right. Absolutely. Absolutely not. (laughs) Me neither. Okay. So just because we can do something right or well, doesn't mean we can do it every second. We can't Mm. just because you can in one moment, one moment doesn't mean you can in every moment. So that's Mm -hmm. one thing. The other is our capacity to regulate our bodies and to regulate our emotions and to pause and make a decision. All of these really sophisticated things that we have to do in order to be well-behaved are all prefrontal. Um, And so, and our kids have very undeveloped prefrontal cortices. Our capacity to handle ourselves fluctuates all the time. So when you've had a good night's sleep, probably a rarity if you have three small children, but if you've had a good night's sleep, you're getting along well with your spouse. You, um, have had some time for yourself. You you've been exercising. Um, you have, you know, you're not starving. Your blood sugar is fine. Your capacity, your patience is going to be great, right? You're, you're probably going to have high capacity. So whether a demand of, um, so let's, let's take this to a kid level now. Um, if you have had a nap and a snack and um, someone's engaged with you in a positive way and you're, ha- you know, you're in a great mood, your capacity is going to be really high. So when you're, you know, when your little sibling or when your 18 month old takes your toy away and you're three and you're building something, they might say something like, I was playing with that. Can I have it back, please? Right. Mm. So they have great capacity. They handled it like you're like, wow, look how amazing and mature and bright my mm. child is. Right. <laughs> but if it's 20 minutes before the nap, or right before they've eaten and their blood sugar is low, or they're not feeling well, or they're going through a growth spurt. And so you don't even know that something else is going on yet because they haven't outgrown the pants, but 
And then three to six weeks before that, they might be more sensitive and more volatile emotionally. Their capacity may be a lot lower. So sometimes I always think about it like in terms of capacity and demands. So the dem- mm-hmm. a demand might be really high sometime, like um, pausing and controlling your body if you're really angry. That's a big demand for a three-year-old. Um, brushing your teeth when you're in a good mood is a low demand for a three-year-old, okay? So the demands of your day might be really high or really low or being brave at drop-off, with, you know, and, and, and not, you know, grabbing onto your parent and screaming and crying. Like, that's a big demand, right? Mm. But your capacity fluctuates too. So if your capacity is high, you can handle high demands. Mm. If your capacity is low, you may not even be able to handle low demands. So it's yeah. really thinking about what is the demand And what is the capacity and are they a match or not? Mm -hmm. Um, And if your child chronically is not matching the demands, we first have to ask the question, is the demand I'm thinking of developmentally appropriate? Am I Mm -hmm. asking something of my child that they are capable of doing? Um, And just because they're capable of doing it sometimes doesn't mean they're capable of doing it all times. And then um, and then if you determine that what you're asking of a child and whether this is in a classroom setting or at home or whatever is developmentally appropriate and most other kids are able to do that, then we need to start looking at what is getting in the way of my child reaching that demand. And then Mm. that might be a time to seek out some expert advice. You know, your child might have a sensory processing challenge or um, there may be a a little bit of a developmental delay around language or something Mm. else going on that might account for that gap. So that's the other thing, not just around when something's, you know, not quite happening developmentally, but in all cases, Mm. we really want to be curious about our kids' behaviors. Yeah, and I've seen that too of thinking of, you know, my eldest who is like a two E gifted kid with like some sprinkling of ADHD in there where mm-hmm. part of him is far accelerated. Yep. Uh, but his emotional uh lability reactions are much higher. Right. Yeah. And so we've learned that with him to work with him, which is very different than my middle son. Um and then my daughter, well she's just she's just her right now. She's just a hot <laughs> mess half the time. But but it's it's so funny you do see that. And I love that image of capacity demand. Like what yeah. you know, what are their current strengths and what are the things that we need to help scaffold with them to build that skill set and know that it's gonna be repeated experiences, much like lifting weights, over and over and over yeah. again. And and I and going back to the, the first two things you said, I think it's so important is yes, capacity and demand, which is like a few things, but the other is is my child ready and and am I ready? Because if I think that's where a lot of parents get stuck is they they're not actually ready. Um, right. there's definitely times that I, my, I haven't eaten food or I haven't had right. a good night's sleep. And so my capacity is like, my window is here, right. you know, like it's like having my iPhone charged at like 10%, right. exactly. but I'm expecting it to work all day. And so I, if I hear my kids having a conflict, there's been times I rush in there and I'm, I'm already in a dysregulated state yeah. and, and I'm like, I'm this big presence versus, hold on, let me breathe. Let me yeah. walk in there calmly, get on the floor, right? So it's it's they play off of our emotional state too. So I even have to ask, okay, am I in a good space or do I need to just take 10 seconds to breathe before I walk in there? Yeah. You know, and so it's, those are wonderful questions. Are they ready? Am I ready? And what's the capacity and demand for the day? Because it's constantly fluctuating. And yeah. for us as adults, we have to take all these things into account. I think what happens is, we're, my experience, what I've heard too, is we're rushed. We, yeah. it's like rushed parenting. It's like, well, we got to get out the door. We got to go here. We got, it's like this. And so we kind of try to throw everything into these yeah. busy schedules and then it just creates more meltdowns for everybody. And that's a reality, right? So, yeah. you know, most of the time we really can't make our lives less chaotic. Yeah. Um, and I think one way to think about it is like the brain is either in a reactive state 
mm-hmm. or it's in a regulated state. So if we're in a reactive state, if our kids in a react reactive state, um, then usually not very, we're not going to be have the best outcomes, right? Those mm-hmm. are the moments that are not the moments where I'm at my best self and not the moments where my kids are. So if you find yourself in a position where your kid is not regulated and you're not regulated, obviously if you have little kids, the first thing you need to do is make sure everybody's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, I want to give everybody permission to say, um, this is not the right time. And even we can even say to our kids, especially as they get older to say, I really want to think about how I want to respond about this. So we'll, we'll have the conversation in a little while, or I'm really frustrated right now and I'm not my best self. So I'm going to go, I'm going to take a break and I'm going to get myself calmed down before we have Mm. this conversation so that I can be really thoughtful about it. I mean, I think that's really good modeling, but what's interesting is, and, um, this is a little bit of a radical idea is that, if the point and purpose is to teach and build skills so that they can become self-disciplined, then everything I do in the name of discipline is about teaching and skill building, getting mm-hmm. those reps in. If my child is not ready to learn, then what do I do? In the name of discipline, I want to co-regulate with them, mm-hmm. meaning they're not regulated. So I'm going to bring my calm, regulated self it's just like when they were babies and they would cry and you mm. would calm their little nervous systems down through whatever that was, feeding them, um, rocking them, walking them, taking them outside, singing to them. We do these things to regulate their nervous system. Okay. Mm. And, um, and so as they get older, this might mean a calm presence. It might mean hugs. It might mean some of those same things, rocking or walking outside. Um, as we get into teenagers, it might be simply saying like, I can see you're having a really hard time and I'm right here with you mm. while you're having a hard time. Just the availability of your presence. It might mean bringing them a snack, you know, or whatever it is. But what you're doing is you're offering verbally and non-verbally, you're offering comfort, connection, help. And you're not doing that to be passive and weak. You're doing that to strategically regulate their nervous system. Mm. Because if you can move them from reactive into regulated and receptive, then that's when the teaching is most effective. Okay. So one thing that I will just throw out is if you're not ready to teach and if you're not regulated and you are hurrying and it's really hard and you can't stop to collect yourself. One thing we know, and this is, um, uh, something I've been teaching for a long time, but I just learned from Andrew Huberman on his fabulous podcast that it's called the physiologic sigh. I didn't know it was called that. And apparently it's been, um, studied since the Mm thirties and I've been teaching this for decades, not knowing what it was called or what the history was. Um, (laughs) but it's the quickest thing we know to downregulate reactivity in the nervous system. And all it is, is something we actually do all the time automatically, which is a deep sigh. So oftentimes it's a frustrating day. You're like, But the physiologic side, you can do purposely. And Mm. all it is, is having your exhale longer than your inhale. It's, there Mm. are different ways people do it and there's different hacks around all of it or whatever. But simply for me, I would breathe in through my nose for a count of four and breathe out through my mouth for a count of eight. And I would do that twice. And it really is. And I usually have a hand on my heart and a hand on Mm. my belly when I do it. Yeah. It is really powerful. And what's interesting too, is if you do that before you yell, if you do that to like regulate yourself and, and calm yourself down, um, your kids are also seeing that they can learn how to do it too. You can do it. You can be like, I'm mad. You're mad. Your sister's mad. We're all having a hard time. Let's calm our bodies. Right. You can Mm. do that. But also what was funny is every time I would do it when my kids were really little, um, my kids, it became almost a warning sign. They were like, oh, mom's now reached her point where it's about to get ugly. So they would often rein it in because it was almost like the, uh, you know, uh, um, a precursor to yeah. mom being crazy. So that was helpful too. So I think that idea though of 
How do we get them from reactive mm. into receptive where our teaching is effective? We do it through regulation, regulation yeah. of ourselves and co-regulation. Yeah. And sometimes that just literally means I can see you're having a hard time. Mm. I'm right here with you while you're having a hard time. Or what do you need? Or yeah. how can I help? It's simply that. Then they get to the regulated place. Then they're ready to learn. And we want to hold them accountable for their behavior. And we say, I know you know it's not okay to hurt your sister. Mm. I know you know that. So what do you think happened there? And then how can you make things right with your sister? And what can you do next time when you're really angry? Because it's okay to be angry, but it's not okay to hit your sister. So right. what could you do next time? And you have a reflective dialogue. And at the end of that, and then they maybe go apologize and we maybe do some practice about what they could do next time. At the end of that interaction, have I taught? Yes. So I'm done. I often tell a story about a time my one of my sons hit his little brother. Mm -hmm. And, um, I wanted to, my, my reaction in the moment, you know, I've got to deal with the perpetrator, right? This is the discipline moment. And so my instincts in that moment in a more reactive place, cause someone's just hit my kid, even though the perpetrator was also my kid yep. is yep. to like yell and be like, mm -hmm. why did you just hit your brother like that? Like, you know, yeah. that's not okay. What's wrong with you? That's like mm -hmm. my, you know, or why yeah. can't you just chill for one minute and let me finish brushing my teeth. You know, there's like those kinds of things. Yeah. But often we send, we throw out a consequence. I'm like, go to your room. And, mm. and then I, my prefrontal cortex is trying to come up with a good reason. So I say, you clearly can't be with people today. So I'm canceling your play date. Right. Mm. What happens if I throw out a consequence and I just am punitive and I'm doing that out of my own reactivity. Yeah. And my own fear that if I don't hold my kids accountable for their behavior, they're going to eventually just live in a van down by the river and not amount to anything. <laughs> what happens, though, is my kid goes to his room mm. and he sits in his room and here's what he's thinking. My mom is so mean to put me here. And it was Luke's fault in the first place because Luke didn't let me finish the story I was telling to grandma on the phone. And I really wanted to tell the story. And he always takes over because he's bigger than mm. me and he's stronger than me. And I hate him. And I hate my mom because she doesn't even know how hard it is for me to be little. Mm. And that's the thinking that's going on. Does that help him be accountable for his behavior? No, he's actually doing more blaming. Yeah. And so the count, the, the, the consequence itself is actually counterproductive. It's anti-learning. It's anti-accountability. Mm. Instead, if I, I hold him and I say, oh, buddy, you're so mad. I can see your whole body shaking. I'm right here with you. What happened? So he mm. tells me what happens. Then I say, oh, that would have made me so mad too. So I'm connecting and mm. giving him empathy and connection and empathy down regulates the nervous system. And I'm holding him and I go, I give the sigh mm. and he copies it. And I say, oh, that would have made me so mad too. I understand why you were mad. And I pause and I wait for his body to get regulated. His breathing becomes more regulated. His muscles go from tense to, to kind of just natural. So I'm watching this unfold in his body. I can feel it. I can see it. And I can feel him get to this regulated state. And when he's regulated, after I've done connection and empathy and, and validated his feelings and said, I'm right here with you while you're feeling all of these stress hormones pumping through your body from anger and dysregulation. Then I say, Hey buddy, you really hurt Luke. Mm. And I wait and I let him feel the weight of that once he's in a regulated state, because yeah. if he's still in a reactive state, he's like, good, I'm glad I heard him. I wish I had heard him more because we right. can't access empathy. If we're still reactive, our prefrontal mm. cortex goes offline. That's where empathy center is. So then I can say to him, you really hurt your brother. And then he feels bad and he can mm -hmm. sit in that feeling. And I say that feeling you're having right now where you're like, Oh, I feel bad. I did that. That's an amazing superpower you have. That's mm -hmm. the voice inside of you that will help you decide if things are right or wrong. And I want you to listen to that feeling. 
And the good thing is we also have a superpower in our family of um, just like no one can beat Superman's speed. No one can beat our love and our love can't be lost. And so mm-hmm. you can go and make things right with Luke. How do you think you should do that? And then we have a conversation. You know, I know it's OK to get mad, but it's not OK to hurt anybody. Everybody needs to feel safe. So what could you do differently next time? So mm-hmm. he's sitting in the feeling of accountability of, oh, yeah, yeah, I did something that wasn't great. OK, but now I can go make things right. So he's learning repair. We're talking about some reps for how he might be able to handle us in the future while I'm waiting for his brain development to unfold. He's unlikely to do this a year from now as his brain develops. So at the end of that, sure, I could have given him a consequence. And by the way, having to have the reflective dialogue is not his favorite. That, I guess, is a consequence, right? And having Mm -hmm. to go and, you know, say, I'm sorry to the brother, that's not fun. That is a consequence. So I think it's, it's all in how we define it. But I think punishment here, as you heard, if I had just sent him to his room and taken something away, it would have been counterproductive. It would have been yeah. anti-learning. Yeah. I mean, so those listening, by the way, you're going to, that, that's pure gold. I mean, she, she answered, there's probably so many questions that Tina just answered. Like, why would I do this? Like, why, why should I do this? Like, what's the benefit? I mean, there's, you just laid out everything from our nervous system, the brain development to co-regulation. To, I mean, there's all these little nuggets. So you're going to want to probably replay that little rewind, you know, a minute or two and listen <laughs> to that again, because there's so much nuance and little things that as Tina was describing that was occurring as a parent to help your kiddo rather than like you said just go punished you know consequence in the room because you're right so so I guess with that for a quick angle of like if that's kind of what we're doing that punishment if discipline equals punishment if we're just putting our kid in the room what are some like two or three problems that can arise from that type of parenting that you've seen time and time again the consequence driven punishment driven yeah yeah i mean i think what happens is first of all the kids then don't build the skill to do better the next time. So it's a missed opportunity, number one. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll tell another really quick story. I work in a lot of schools. And so I had this kid who kept using inappropriate language during unstructured times, like during library. This is like a first grader. And he kept getting consequences at school for doing, you know, he he was kept saying butt crack and stuff like that, all the body humor, which of course the kids love, and you know most sure. adults still think is funny too, and myself included. I, I, I just smile. Uh, yeah, I, I like it laughed. too. Um, and yeah, my, it's a great way to keep my kids regulated with singing songs with lots of body humor in them yes, um, in the car. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, so what happened was they kept giving this kid consequences: missing recess, notes home, you know, sitting in timeout, all these different things, and he kept doing the behavior. And so then mm. they were kind of like, we don't know what else to do. So I went and observed this kid. And it turned out that um, here's a huge principle. And I'm going to hold on to your question. But behavior is communication about the skills our kids don't yet have. So basically, this kid was saying to so I observed this kid, he had a really hard time entering play with other kids. Mm -hmm. He didn't know how to initiate getting involved, getting included in the group. He didn't know how to do that. So what happened was, I saw his behavior as him basically saying, I don't have any strategies. This is my best strategy for how to Mm -hmm. engage with my peers. So again, instead of doing something to him, like taking away recess, we want to do something for him. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to respond by saying, hey, it seems like when you say butt crack, all your friends laugh and then you get to be part of the group. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yep. And I'm like, so the bad behavior was his best strategy. It was Hmm. his best adaptation. So instead of doing something to him, I wanted to do something for him to give him another strategy that worked, right? Hmm. So basically we practice things like, can I sit here or to tell a funny joke that was was appropriate to use at school or different things like that. So he needed some skill building. Behavior is communication. I love doing this activity with parents and all of you can do this where I have them write at the top of a piece of paper discipline problems and to come up with the two or three things that drive you the most crazy that you're spending the most time on that you feel like you're butting your head against a wall. 
and list those. And then I ask people to cross out the title of the list. It's no longer discipline problems. The title of the list is skills my kid doesn't have yet. Mm. And it, it frames us into teaching. So what happens back to your original question is when we go with just the punitive model, not only are they not getting skills to be able to move towards self-discipline, but we know from the literature um, that kids don't get, when we are punishment focused, Kids do tend to um, have two. There's a lot of different outcomes, but I'll hit two quickly. One is they don't necessarily change their behavior, but they get much better at hiding it hmm. because punishment is so unpleasant and the nervous system is programmed to to avoid what's unpleasant. But basically what it, it just like if my kid came to me and shared with me something like, hey, I was at this party and such and such happened or you know, um, this happened at school and I got in trouble and I freaked the hell out. If I freak out, my kid is not going to stop doing things. My kid's not going to stop having experiences that are alarming in their life, whether it's them or another kid, hmm. but they're going to learn from that rep. Oh, okay. That, that did not feel good. I just got criticized and minimized and she freaked out and that felt so terrible. So I'm not going to do that again. So what happens is when we are punitive in nature and critical in nature and we freak out, our kids avoid anything that might lead mm. to that outcome again. So they hide it from us. The other thing we see is that when we typically go with a punishment lens, it's typically if we're really honest with ourselves about power and control. And so what we're doing is we're modeling for kids is the way you make things happen the way you want them to, to is with power and control. And so this is this is borne out in the literature that we actually see more aggressiveness, more power and control. And I will tell you this, if you are using power and control as your, you know, because I said so or I'm going to make you do it, if we go that route mm -hmm. at some point and it may be not until they're teenagers, unless you're willing to call the police or physically incarcerate them, you will lose. Mm -hmm. So think about your high school and you're like, well, you're grounded. And they're like, well, I'm not staying in. You can't make me stay home. What are you going to do? You're going to really right. literally lock them in a room. Are you going to call the police? Like power and control eventually does not work. And we're also mm -hmm. modeling something that we don't want them to yeah. learn. So punishment doesn't provide any skills for the future. And it has mm -hmm. all kinds of negative um, outcomes as well. Yeah. Think about, about it, too, is that if we're working with our kids instead of doing something to them. And, you know, for me, I think about a couple of things. One is, you know, oftentimes when I say, look, if your kid is dysregulated and they can't learn, either you co-regulate with them or you wait. You just say, you know what? Everyone needs a break. Let them calm down, whatever. OK, so then you come back to it. Parents will often say to me, but wait, you're giving them attention and comfort and hmm. nurturing when they've done something wrong. Yeah. And I'm saying, no, I'm strategically regulating their nervous system to mm. make them receptive to learning so I can be an effective disciplinarian. And on top of that, I'm giving their brain a rep of going from a dysregulated nervous system into a regulated nervous system so that they can do that for themselves. Yeah. The way we learn self-regulation is by having someone co-regulate with us. So I think, um, and then I'll say one other thing and then I'll stop. And that is this, <laughs> if we want our children's prefrontal cortices that allow them to have insight, empathy, to pause before action, to make sound decisions, morality is even there. Um, 
the ability to regulate their emotions, regulate their body, executive function, the ability to pause and not do something impulsive. Like all of these self-control pieces are prefrontal. The Mm. best way to build the prefrontal is through reps and experiences. And so when it's a discipline moment, I want to give my kid, instead of me having the mental load of how to figure out what do I do to my kid, what's going to be effective, I often work with them and have them, like I'll say to them, I know you know it's okay. It's not okay to you know, lie about not turning in your homework. I know, you know, that's not okay. So I'm curious what happened there. And then they talk and they explain and you go, Hmm, okay, that's really interesting. I didn't, you know, I I didn't, I didn't realize that that was happening or, okay, well, even though you thought that was a good excuse, it's actually still a requirement and an expectation that you turn in your homework. So Mm. what do you think we should do here? What's your plan? So basically what we're doing is we're saying, And the literature is very clear, decades and decades and decades, like 70 plus years of research that show that kids do best when we have high structure, expectations, limits and boundaries and high connection, empathy, Mm. um, validation, (laughs) emotional responsiveness. So in that moment, I'm going to ask my kids prefrontal to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And I'll say something like, I bet you know exactly what I'm going to say. So why don't you be the grown-up and Mm. you give the lecture? Then they start saying it and they're teaching me. So they're getting more reps that way. But also it makes me feel better because I'm like, oh, they actually have been listening to me. Mm. Or I say, how are we going to solve this problem? What are your ideas? So I'm I'm working with them that together collaboratively, we're saying, here's a problem. How are we going to solve it together? And I think you are part of the solution. And I think your brain can get some reps in there doing it. Yeah. Uh, I, I love how you said I, I'll stop talking. I'm like, I don't want you to stop talking because it's, it's, it's all gold. It's just all like, okay, this is, <laughs> there's so much evidence to show the importance of making disciples, like teaching. Like these are yeah. apprentices. I think of the apprentice model too. If you apprentice yourself to like a, you know, a, a, a luthier or apprentice to a painter, apprentice to an artist, like you're, you're walking alongside to learn from them and how important that is. And, and, it's such an it's such a for a lot of people so mind blowing because again they come from that punishment that punitive this is what I was done to me so I do it to them and often it's I think it's mindless I don't think it's in yeah they do what they know and especially the when fly you're fly by the seat of the pants discipline philosophy mm-hmm. right and then they get stuck and then when they're frustrated they it's easy to go to power and control and yell because I it's almost like I don't know what else to do but I know that I can get my kids attention if I yell if I scream if I yeah if I take away this. Again, is there, I think, like you said, this is not about not having sometimes a natural consequence. Sometimes that, that's the case. You know, sometimes you have to do something. Yep. Um, you know, maybe you have to leave the party, right? Maybe yep. it's best to leave and not stay because it's, we got to regulate. You know what? We all got to leave. And so it's willing to take on that, that as with your kid almost sometimes too, I think is like, um, you're doing it with them, not just yeah. by themselves. And, and now for a short break. So if you're looking for ways to support the show and my YouTube channel, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. There you can make a one-time donation or join the monthly subscription service to support all that I'm doing at the intersection of fatherhood and mental health. And all the proceeds go right back into all the work that I'm doing into production, into continue to grow the show to bring on new guests. So again, head on over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash therapy for dads. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. But my last question is I'm conscious of the time and, and obviously I know it's going to be kind of a paraphrase, but if you, if you think about the importance and power of men and fathers implementing this method that 
discipline is about teaching. Why is that so important that men and fathers get on this page of discipline equal teaching versus discipline equal punishment? I think it's so important because here's the sort of foundation of this. One of the best predictors for how well kids turn out on everything we measure them on is that they have what's called secure attachment with at least one person. That's a, This is a whole other podcast conversation that's from our, my book, The Power of Showing Up with Dan Siegel. But the way that we help our kids feel securely attached to us is by, we call it the four S's, helping kids feel safe and seen and soothed and secure and knowing you're going to keep showing up. Hmm. One of the primary foundational pieces of that is this felt sense of safety. And it it goes back to our mammal. So what is attachment? Attachment is an inborn mammal instinct to be connected and protected that allows us to have a better chance of survival. So if you're a bear cub, you see a predator, you get hurt, you hear a scary noise, you have a biological instinct to go to your attachment figure who's going to keep you alive. Okay, that's Mm. our primary attachment instinct. What this means is the idea of feeling connected and protected is foundational to our child's best outcomes and how their brains get developed, et cetera. When parents and particularly dads who take on the role of protectors are reactive and out of control, what a child's nervous system experiences is if you're out of control and angry and reactive, you you're not even in control of yourself. How can you be in control of the world around me to keep me safe? Hmm. So it's actually a threat to our very felt sense of safety. So I think often dads, fathers hold this really sacred responsibility. Mothers do too, but dads, it's a little bit different in terms of this idea of protection. Hmm. One of the best ways we can help our kids feel safe and protected is by doing what we've just talked about, is that we are in charge of our own nervous systems. Hmm. If we are reactive, we pause and we do the very brave, strong thing of regulating ourselves and pausing and getting ourselves okay again before we explode. Yeah. And I think as leaders, whether that's a mom or a dad, we, we want to be the safe harbor in the storm, the calm of the storm, the eye of the storm, instead of joining the storm. And I think if we think about discipline as teaching, as opposed to just something we have to react to angrily so that we communicate to them that's not acceptable behavior, we're actually adding more oxygen to the fire. We're, I'm Now I'm mixing a bunch of metaphors. But mm-hmm. the idea here is that when we have a calm, regulated competence and confidence that I am in charge here and I'm going to say no to this behavior, but I'm still going to say yes to you and your feelings about this boundary I'm setting. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the idea, Aliza Pressman um, says all feel, um, all behaviors are not okay, but all feelings are. The way Dan Siegel and I talk about it is you can say no to a behavior, but still say yes to your child and who they are and the relationship and all this stuff. So I think, you know, dads in particular have been socialized that they have to, um, that they're not supposed to be as emotionally responsive, mm-hmm. that they're supposed to be much more the command and demand um, kind mm-hmm. of approach. And I would say that based on what we know about the nervous system, um, that coming in with a calm, regulated nervous system where you are focused on teaching is actually a position of strength. Hmm. Um, It's a position of intentionality. And our kids need that. And I think our kids learn it's okay if parents aren't on the same page. 
um, kids actually learn which parent is better to go to for specific requests. That actually is good prefrontal um, having to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's so important for dads and men to think about how one of our primary, one of their primary jobs is to coach the capacity to be a strong leader Hmm. while being completely regulated and to have not a reactive confidence, but a a regulated Hmm. confidence to be a strong leader in the world. Wow. Not a reactive confidence, but a regulated confidence. Yeah. Like I've got you, we've got this, you know, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think of all those books, movies, you know, um, what comes to mind, it's like Yoda, right? I, I just go there. I'm a Star Wars geek. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it was just May the 4th yesterday. Um, so uh, when we recorded May 5th. But I, I think of like when we look at these people, we, yeah, Yoda is a regulated presence. Or Qui-Gon Jinn, he was a regulated presence. He was attuned to Anakin, that he was calm. like, And he, he would teach. It was about teaching. And he would challenge and direct Anakin. But he was calm and collected. And he got on his level. Like if you watch that, but I think a lot of men... And this is a different podcast for a different day. A lot of stuff I'm looking into is how I think a lot of men are, they're stuck in their own dysregulated state. And so they parent dysregulated. That's that kind of, they're not that calm presence. And so I think that's a great way to to end the show for today. But before I let you go, where can we find you if people are looking to get your stuff? I know it's tinabryson.com. And what's your Instagram handle? People want to follow you there. What's that? Yeah, it's Tina Payne Bryson. And that's P-A-Y-N-E. B-R-Y-S-O-N. And if you go back on my Instagram feed, um, I actually did um, this last year, every Monday, I did a discipline mistake we all make. I did Mm. 20 of them. And it actually comes right out of the No Drama Discipline book. But I did um, 20 discipline mistakes we make all the time. And then I talk about what we can do instead. So if you go back and you can, you you know, hit all of that, um, there's some really good gems in there. Um, So yeah, I'm on social media and my website. And um, I think what's so important is that our children are watching. And like I said, at the very beginning Mm. of the episode, you know, the two ways they learn best is by practicing doing it themselves and by what we model and what they're Mm -hmm. watching us do. And so, you know, I've worked with lots of dads. Um, one of my favorite stories, and I know we're out of time was that I asked this dad, this dad and his son would get into these massive battles. His son was five or six years old. Mm -hmm. And what would happen is that the kid was really reactive. He had some sensory processing things that the parents didn't know about yet. And so he was a really, the whole family was on eggshells, kind of held hostage to his frequent long tantrums. So it was really challenging. But what would happen is the kid was in these constant reactive states because his nervous system was Mm -hmm. um, in reactive states because of this sensory processing challenge. But anyway, he was in these massive tantrum modes all the time. And what what would happen is these reactive states can be really contagious. (laughs) So dad would join him in these really reactive states and they would instead of co-regulating, it was co-escalating. So the kid Mm -hmm. would kick the dad. The dad would grab him by the arm and the kid would try to bite him. And then he'd say, you have to go to your room. And he'd put him in his room, but the kid wouldn't stay in his room. So then he would hold the door shut and then the kid would destroy the room. And Mm -hmm. so it was like a massive tantrum situation. And so, um, this was a dad who believed that strict punishment and that strictness was actually what her, his kid needed because he was spoiled and manipulative. Hmm. And so when I started gently questioning, like, okay, but what have you been trying? Because I always ask parents, like, what's your theory about what's happening? And that's where I hear, well, he needs stricter discipline. He's spoiled. Um, and I say, well, what have you been doing? And he describes what they've been doing. And I say, that sounds like really strict discipline. So it's not really working. So let's try something different. So I gave him this... Um, suggested experiment. And I want to share it because it's really powerful. 
I asked the dad, I said, the next time he's raging, having a tantrum, having big behaviors, keeping in mind that the part of the brain that lights up when we're in physical pain is also the same part of the brain that lights up when we're in emotional pain. And when your child is having a massive emotional meltdown that looks like bad, disrespectful behavior, it's actually stress hormones flooding their little bodies. Mm. And it's miserable for them. And when they're at their worst, that's when they most need connection and regulation. So I said to him, the next time this happens, I want you to sit in a... So I said to him, you've got an angry look on your face. You're wagging your finger at him. Your Mm. tone is aggressive. Your body posture is aggressive. And basically, you're stoking the the reptile brain. You're basically saying... You're poking the reptile brain. You're basically activating fight, flight, freeze for him. And he's doing it for you. And you guys are both just fight, 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 fight. So Mm. I said, I want you to do the opposite. I want you to, the next time... I want you to sit below his eye level because that's going to give the opposite message of no threat. I want to give him the opposite message, no threat. I want you to sit below eye level and I want you to say something empathetic. So I want you to say only two things. One is, oh, buddy, you're so angry or you're having such a hard time and I'm right here with you. So I Mm. wanted him to say that second part. I'm right here with you while you're feeling this. Mm. He was like, you want me to sit in a submissive posture to my child Mm. when he's having bad behavior and reward it? And I said, no, I want you to sit in a strategic posture to downregulate his nervous system. I love that. So he didn't like it. And I didn't think I'd ever see them again. But about two (sighs) weeks later, he and his wife came back to my office and he said, I want to admit something to you, Dr. Bryson. He said, I I told my wife when we got in the car last time that you were a waste of time and money and you didn't know what you were talking about. And and I said, okay, great. Well, I use my best therapist voice and I thought I want to activate more fight, flight, freeze. And I said, did you come back to share that with me or what's our agenda today? And he said, no, I came back to apologize. He said, in a moment of desperation, my child was just raging and I was too tired to battle with him. So he Hmm. said, I didn't do it exactly like you said. He said, I, I sat on the floor and I crossed my arms because I, I told him to sit in a relaxed posture <laughs> to communicate <laughs> safety. But he said, I crossed my arms and I said, I can tell you're mad, but I'll sit here with you. And I said, OK, well, good. That's progress. <laughs> and he said, but Tina, something happened. He calmed oh. down faster than I've ever seen him calm down. He said, and something else amazing happened. And he said, I was able to stay in control of myself and calm mm. in a way I never have before. And, and so then I started doing some psychoed and explaining the brain is an association machine. So when we have aggressive posture and aggressive gestures and we're yelling, we're activating, we're kind of calling, the, there's a call for a neural response in our brain. Anything related to these aggressive postures, please get activated. And we get more mad. Mm-hmm. But if we sit below eye level and we say something empathetic, even if we feel like screaming and yelling, within a couple of minutes, a different neural network gets activated. Because it's like anything related to sitting in a relaxed posture below someone's eye level, like that communicates no threat in our nervous systems. And so we start talking about this and he became really emotional. And he said, that felt so amazing. I was able to help my child Mm. instead of hurt him. I was able to be the kind of parent I wanted to be. And it worked like he, Mm. it was, it was such a game changer. And what was funny is his wife's like, yeah, but now he's driving me crazy. The minute I start raising my voice at him and I'm annoyed with him, he sits on the floor and uh, below my eye level. I think he's mocking me. And I'm like, actually it will work on your significant other, by the way. Um, But I think this is another really helpful story to say there is tremendous strength. Yeah in moving from fighting and Hmm. power and control and to say, I am in charge. I am in control of myself so I can Hmm. be in charge of you. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to be present while you feel what you're feeling. And what happens then is our kids get reps of sitting in difficult feelings 
so that they learn how to be resilient when those feelings come up in the future. So I love that story because it's a story of a dad who was willing to try something different and found it really rewarding and had all kinds of brain benefits for him and his kid. That's, I, I think that story, I love that story too. I think it encapsulates everything that I think a lot of men struggle with is that it, it, and you paint it so well and to hear how he is coming about and practicing this it's it warms my heart because i remember when i've had these moments with my kids too it's just they get it and you see it and you see the regulation and you feel it and you feel like i'm helping my kid not hurting them yeah. right that i think that captured the whole thing i'm helping yeah. my kid i'm not hurting them because i think that dad knew that deep down it, it, it i'm hurting him maybe didn't say it in language but felt it because in that moment he made that connection like oh this is different um, and I'm glad he came back and I know exactly what you're saying. You're saying when someone <laughs> comes back, like, okay, why are you here? Like, what? Okay, so let me practice my yeah. regulated state. Well, and, um, and we talked about how his child then has an experience of, like, I always imagine, like, what the kids are are feeling and saying. It's like the kids, like, when I have really big feelings that overwhelm me and I don't know how to handle it and it's awful and it's I have these stress hormones flooding in my body and when that happens and I can't help it, I get mm, in trouble. Yeah. Versus... I have all these big feelings and I can't help it and they're flooding me and I'm having the stress response and someone's going to show up for me and help me. And that's what we want for our kids is to have reps relationally with Mm. us that let them know at your worst, I will show up at your worst. I will still love you. All behaviors are not okay, but you will never lose my love. And so relationally, our kids are getting reps every time we have discipline moments as well. And um, if we are critical, angry, dismissing, minimizing, etc. it's going to not feel good and they're going to come to us less. And that yes. I will tell you is really important as our kids get older and move into adolescence. We want them to know I can go tell my parent anything and at my mm. worst, they're still going to love me and show up for me and we're yeah. going to figure this out together. We're on the same team. Yeah, totally. And as a side note, and we're going to end here, is that that fights against the sh- negative shame messages that kids struggle with, right? Because that go back to the kid who's who gets put in the room, right? right. I'm bad. I'm broken. Right. I'm not enough, right? That they start to make, have to make sense of the world as to why is this happening. And my parents are, they hate me, right? And it's because of this rather than, no, I'm loved in my, at my worst. I'm, yeah. you know, they're, yeah, instead they're of, here with me. Instead right? of when I'm at my worst, people leave me. People right. don't yes. want to be with me. Um, yes. I had, a, I was with a mom one time who said to her upset child, um, we are happy in this family. And um, if you can't be happy, that's fine. But you need to go into your room. Mm. And when you're happy, you can come back out. And I was like, oh, that's the exact opposite message. Yeah. I want that child to hear. I want that kid to yeah. know we love you no matter what. And, yeah. you know, if you're having a hard time with your behavior, you know, let's figure that out. And you might need to spend a little bit of time calming down or, you know, whatever it is. But I think to say at your worst, I will Mm. show up for you. And that, um, that's all. Otherwise, yeah, we all want that. We all want to know that I can't, every person comes to my office, dad, mom, whoever at the core, the deepest, darkest part of us, our fear is that we we're going to be rejected and left alone. It's all about belonging. We we all want to belong. We all want to be connected. Mm -hmm. We all want to be accepted. And so like that, that's the key is as a parent, we are giving that gift, that message over and over and over again, that no matter what I'm here, yes, we got to correct behaviors, of course, but the core of it is, no, I'm here with you. Oh, that's right. uh, we can keep, honestly, <laughs> we keep talking and I would love to keep talking, but I know I'm mindful of your time and I'm very, very thankful for being on. Please tune in, follow Dr. 
Tina Bryson's work. If you don't already, I push your stuff all the time and Dan Siegel's work. It's amazing stuff. It's rooted in science. It's effective. It does. It takes time. It's not, it's not always quick. Our brains need the, reps for it too. Right. It takes time. We need rep, but it's one of the, yeah. as far as best outcomes, this is what we do. So thank you so much and have an excellent, excellent day. Dr. Thank Bryson. you. Bye. Thanks for joining and listening today. Please leave a comment and review the show. Dads are tough, but not tough enough to do this fatherhood thing alone.